One example is James Amolo, who's been working in Poland doing phenomenal things about the, for the African community, has written a book uh, called Strangers at the Gate, a wonderful study of the types of struggles that people experience uh, specifically from the African community in Poland. It was incredible to see how proud uh, both of them were. They told me how amazing of a gift I'd given them. And uh, it's hard to truly understand that from their perspective because the whole situation was just such a dream and such a, yes. such a rush for me. I've never, I've never won the Olympics before. Some people saying, oh my God, you're not scared of going to jail and working with these people? I was like, no, I am not because I'm just, I just want to see who they are. You know, it was just wonderful to watch how they interacted with, with each other and um, how thankful and grateful they were for being seen and heard. Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. Probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland? Sausages. <laughs> Pierogies? Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Jazz. I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 52nd episode of Polkas. Art gives a voice, empowers, returns dignity, and changes lives. This is what Anna Rak and the acting school she graduated from in New York believe in. Anna is a Polish actress there who works with inmates. Her work has also changed her life. She also aims to give a voice to art communities in New York who have so much to offer and are not heard enough. We reach Anna Rack in New York. Anna, let's first talk about your, um, your way to where you are now, which is the Stella Adler Studio of Acting. What is it exactly? Stella Adler Studio of Acting. I actually graduated in 2016 in July. Um, it's an acting school. I did a two-year professional conservatory at Stella Adler that changed my life. Mm -hmm. And that's how I actually started working with uh, inmates uh, also because they have a, a program called Outreach Division. Um, and that's where I just got engaged and, uh, and I wanted to, like, change people's lives. What is this outreach uh, program about? What's the idea? It's a program created by Stella Adler Studio for poor communities, people from the Bronx or people where they don't have uh, the same opportunities as mm -hmm. people from the middle class, let's say. And they, through arts, they want to give them opportunities. They want to give them voice and be heard and seen. Is it working with adults or is it also working with kids? It's, it's uh, working with both with uh, high schoolers, with people from primary school. It's working with uh, inmates. So I actually uh, work uh, at the Manhattan Detention Complex uh, downtown Manhattan, where we have uh, an ongoing series of theater workshops. What made, you, what made you decide to go this way? I mean, you could have worked with kids, you could have worked with teens. Why did you decide to go to a penitentiary institution to work with inmates? It was really fascinating for me how to approach that. And, and I've heard a lot of stories that that might be a life-changing experience. And I know a lot of people who, who do these things. First of all, I just wanted to experience that. When I, started, uh, when I started studying at Stella Adler, they always told us that growth as an actor and growth as a human being are synonymous. Also, during my training, we were always reminded about having a non-judgmental mind and approaching actually your character and giving your character a carte blanche that every behavior or every situation has its background and the circumstances. So I thought this was so important for, uh, for this job. Then when I started working there, I watched a documentary on Netflix called The 13th. It's a documentary about the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. It really 
opened my eyes for what is happening in the prison system in the United States. I understood that some of these people are there just because because of the system. They have, they have nothing to do with who they are and what they've done, whether they... some Obviously, I, I can't tell for all, but some of them got just unlucky. And you can really see that when you you enter that space. You know, I, I really highly recommend to watch that documentary. When you go to jail and you see who is there, who the type of people, you really understand what it is all about. You know, the, uh, the racial issue. What I've learned from that movie is that um, people who get there, let's say, for no reason for just being suspicious to the authorities, just because they don't have a stable financial situation or they, they just don't have money, nobody knows that they're, they are in jail. So that's why nobody helps them out to get out. And so they just stay and they wait sometimes for years. I believe that must cause something, something big or something negative in them just because they are not being helped. So I believe when we bring theater and we provide them that safe space and we want to hear their voice, we hope that this experience balances what they have to go through every day. When, when they see a person who is open for them and who just wants to get to know them for who they are, they just, uh, they just like us, you know, they just mm-hmm. regular human beings. Uh, I understand you do two things, right? You work uh, with a group on acting, drama, and you also do workshops in uh, actual writing. How do they differ? Who are sure. these people? How do you do what you do? Last year, we had two units. The first unit was uh, the unit of transgender uh, adults, and the other one was uh, adult men. So with the transgender adults, they were more interested in playwriting. It was just their choice. Uh, we would meet up, I believe that was every Monday um, and morning, and we would just sit and start writing plays, and then we would read them and workshop them, and after a few weeks, uh, we would have a stage reading of it. We would invite someone Uh, from the administration to look at what the prisoners, what the inmates are doing. You know, it was just wonderful to watch how they interacted with with each other and um, how thankful and grateful they were for being seen and heard. What did they write about? They wrote a lot about violence, about race, being misunderstood or being um, excluded from society. So we wrote a play about family relationships. And so did each one of them do his own piece, or did you all work on no, one? No, we all worked on one piece. And it was more of a conversation that we would just either start writing. They would start having a conversation, and we would write that conversation as it was happening. Was it a course, like, for example, that they would do a one-year course or one year? No, no, no. no. So we would, just, we would just see how that play develops and... Um, Whenever it was ready, we would just read it. Um, sometimes it would be faster. Sometimes it would take longer. What do you think do you it think? gave them? I mean, I just can't even imagine how that must feel when you see the same people every day in this little space. You have no chance to go out. You can see everything from, I don't know which floor was that. I was 15th floor. To be in that small space and suddenly have someone from outside, from from the world where you want to be and this person is willing to hear your story or to, to hear what you want to say. I, I definitely feel like that was something empowering for them. It was definitely something that gives them hope and motivated them to be uh, better people or to be more patient. What about the What other about group? The adult men. So uh, the group of adult men That was a very different dynamic um, in that group. Uh, it was, first of all, age range. It was mainly people between 18th and, I believe, 55 or 60. So the age range was really large. I think around 20 people taking, taking the workshop, while in the transgender unit we had mainly maybe five or six. 
they they were more into acting, so we just did acting workshops with them. We did worm up, we did um, imagination exercises, we did uh, improv, we did some scene work. Um, often we would bring a poem or a quote and work on it, and they loved it. Was there anything that surprised you that was completely unexpected to you working with, well, both of these groups, something that, that stayed in your mind as a very special experience, something that you would, you would never have imagined before? Yeah, definitely how vulnerable and open and willing to work they were. It was incredible. So people saying, oh my God, you're not scared of going to jail and working with these people analysts, I was like, no, I am not because I'm just, I just want to see who they are. You know, after a while they were, they were becoming my friends. These relationships were authentic and real and, and very beautiful. Um, so yeah, it was definitely a life-changing experience. Mm -hmm. I've also read that Stella Adler offers a, a free um, three-month course after, for example, somebody has been discharged yes. from prison, right? That they yeah. can do a course and then that course can prepare them possibly to pursue acting career. When we enter the, uh, uh, the detention complex, we offer the scholarship. Every participant uh, who takes our course gets a certificate at the end and if they would like to, after they hopefully get outside and they can come to Stella Adler and start such a course. Uh, it happens every Sunday and then they can have an audition and start um, do the conservatory that I did to your conservatory. What has it taught you? Has it helped in your acting career, you think? It definitely changed me as an artist. It definitely made me more open, more humble. Do you want to do this? You want to continue, right? I definitely want to continue, yes. I'm going to be starting again in April. I believe right now I'm going to be starting at Rikers Island um, on Wednesday, and it's going to be work with adult men, and I'm excited. So far at Rikers Island, I've only seen a poetry project by young women, and that was also very powerful and beautiful, so I'm very excited to start again and work with a new group. Yeah. Is it, is it difficult to be a Polish actress in New York? I think it's difficult to be a foreign artist in New York just because there are so many foreign artists and because of the visa limitations. Everybody talks about what New York um, gives to artists and how many artists there are in New York and how many foreign people, but nobody talks about limitations connected with, with visas and your not being able to have a green card. But um being a part of this community and having so many artists around you who support your work so much, it's wonderful. It makes you want to do it. It makes you, it drives you to pursue your goals. And, and I think it's, uh, it's like nowhere else. So I definitely, uh, I'm here to stay for a little bit and uh, get to get that motivation from people around me for, for a little bit longer. I've read in your uh, biography something really exciting that you did in Polish and in English, um, a play that was called Story of Two Poets in Brooklyn. Yes, that's right. This is based on uh, something that's very, very dear to our hearts, which is the poetry of Agnieszka Osiecka and Jeremy Przybora. What was it? What was the reception by the non-Poles? Because that was done for non-Poles as well, right? Yeah, it was basically a bilingual production that me and my friend Max Kubis Uh, did in New York. It all started from a very casual conversation about how much we love sung poetry and how much we love, uh, you know, these songs and how beautiful that is and how important and how little Americans or people living in New York know about, you know, Polish literature or Polish culture. Um, and so in January last year, I went to Poland. I met up with a friend of mine Adriana Maja Kuczmierz, a Polish actress, and she told me about an, a performance, kind of a kind of performance she was doing based on their letters and their songs. And I, I got fascinated because I didn't know about their uh, relationship in the 60s. And she told me about... The, the relationship book. between Agnieszka Oszecka yeah, and Jeremy Przybora, right? Exactly. I didn't mm -hmm. know about that uh, secret relationship. So 
I got very interested. And when I came back to New York, I kept thinking about it, that I really want to do a theatrical production of that story or something based on that story. And I thought um, that would be a great opportunity to introduce a American theater goers to Polish culture and um, to show them what we have to offer. So yeah, me and Max did it, like a theatrical adaptation of their letters and their songs. And we translated everything together with, uh, with a professional uh, translator, a, a person who helped us to translate the songs. Uh, so we kind of capture the, the rhythm and the beauty of the poetry. We decided to perform it in Polish because it was so beautiful in our language that we didn't want to do it in any other, but we wanted the American audience to understand what it is all about. So that's why we projected the subtitles um, above our heads on the stage. And uh, yeah, we did that in a jalopy theater in Brooklyn and people loved it. We had people even from Philadelphia who, who came to see it. And then in November, we also performed it in, in Philadelphia. Was it just one performance in Brooklyn? Or? No, it was four performances in Brooklyn. It was a wonderful experience and I hope that we will be able to take that show somewhere else. Just right after school, I really wanted to, um, you know, do as much acting as I as I can. So I did a uh, few productions, and I felt like I was missing something. I felt like I was doing all these great shows, but that wasn't necessarily the stories I wanted to. I wanted to share as a Polish person, as an immigrant, as a female. So I've created an Eastern Eastern Bridge Theater troupe, and the story of two poets was the first. Uh, production of that uh, troupe. We seek to give opportunities for foreign voices in New York and outside of New York. I believe just the, that New York uh, has a platform for all these voices. Uh, independent theater, something big in New York. So people come and watch all these shows, even though they're not on Broadway. So yeah, I've created that. And um, right now we have plenty of new uh, plays that we hope to do readings throughout the year, just give opportunities for uh, contemporary European writers uh, who just don't have opportunities in their own countries. And I hope to uh, provide that for them. To learn more, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. top constructor in the 19th century, a founder of the Central Transandino Railway. Furthermore, he defended the Peruvian soil in the Chinch Islands War, naturally becoming a national hero to this country. How come is he unknown to Poland? Ladies and gentlemen, I present you Ernest Malinowski, and today I am here with Kuba Orwosz, the External Relations Officer of the Great Poles team. So, Kuba, tell me, where are you amazed by a particular construction of his? Um, no, not exactly. I was more amazed by the scale the project of Central Transandino Railway is. Not only was it the highest railway in the world for nearly a century, but also one of the hardest to build. Uh, the railway is 332 kilometers long, consists of 33 tunnels, 30 bridges, and at its highest point, it reaches 4,870 meters above sea level. Wow, heck of a construction. But could you tell me until when it was the highest railway? Uh, it was actually the highest railway until uh, 2006, when Chinese opened their, their railway at 500 meter, 5,000 meters above sea level. Um, but what is what is uh, more about the Central Transandino is that it goes all the way to the ends and connects Peruvian capital Lima 
with industrial regions of Cerro de Pasco and Huaya. Roots and reasons behind Malinowski's emigration. How come did he end up in South America? Well, you know, that was quite a journey, actually. Uh, due to an unstable situation in former Polish territory, he had to leave Poland together with his father and brother. Uh, and it is also important to mention the ones that aren't actually familiar with Polish history, that at the time Poland did not exist as a country. Uh, around yes. half a century later, uh, sorry, before, its territory was divided between Russia, Prussia and Austria-Hungary and mm -hmm. remained dependent until 1918 when uh, the First World War ended, right? Uh, yes, yes, exactly. So Malinowski finished engineering studies uh, in uh, the best university, uh, engineering university in France, and was later proposed a job by French government. After working several years uh, as an engineer and gaining recognition as an excellent one, he was proposed a job by Peruvian government, which he of course accepted. I see. But there's also a fact that he participated in the Chinche Islands War. So could you describe Malinowski's role in defending the Peruvian soil and the roots and the cause behind this actual conflict? Um, so Peru uh, and a couple of uh, other neighboring countries were until 1821 uh, Spanish colonies. Correct. As you can imagine, Spain wasn't really glad with the fact that it's lost uh, its influences uh, yes, and naturally. tried to regain them. Right. Uh, so Peru seemed pretty much vulnerable compared with, at the time, fourth global naval power. Uh, therefore, Spanish picked it as a first stage on its way to regaining its position. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, so Malinowski was assigned to organi organize defense of Calao, an important port in Lima. Uh, the crucial thing about the battle is that the Polish engineer came up with an unusual idea. He put a cannons on wagons. Yeah, so it enabled Peruvian defense to quickly move around the battlefield and effectively react to opponents' moves. The best proof of its genius is that Peru managed to defend the port despite having 50 cannons against 252 Spanish. Well, that must have been a marvelous move. But referring to Malinowski's role in defending the Peru, do you think Malinowski's legacy is in any way acknowledged among today's inhabitants of, of the country? Um, you know, Malinowski is due to his accomplishments both on battlefield and as an engineer, often considered as a, as a national hero. Of course, he is not recalled on a daily basis, but when it comes to engineering or Chincha Islands War, he is one of the first names to pop up. He is also honored with a statue where the, where the central Transandino reaches its highest point. Naturally, naturally. Truly an amazing personality, but yet not acknowledged enough in his own homeland, Poland. Ladies and gentlemen, I strongly advise you to read the article on Ernest Malinowski, written by none other than Kuba Orwash. Thank you very much for the interview. Thank you. Kopacz was born in a Polish-Canadian family in London, Ontario. At 6 foot 5, 195 centimeters, you would imagine him in basketball. But Alex is the reigning Olympic co-champion in the two-man bobsleigh event. Together with his pilot, they won the gold medal at this year's Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang. This is his first Olympic medal, although he got into the World Cup circuit in 2014 and two years later, he earned a bronze as part of a four-man crew in Lake Placid. Everything about Alex is special. He's the only Olympic bobsledder and gold medal winner among mechanical engineers. He got to his highest level only after just over four years of being involved in bobsledding. 
We reach Alex less than a week after the Olympics in Whistler, British Columbia, where he is relaxing after the Olympic pressure, celebrating his victory and, of course, skiing. Almost got my skis sorted out and I can't wait. What's the weather out there? That's yeah, pretty stable, minus three, and yeah. uh, the snow is just perfect conditions from what I've been hearing. How long have you been in Whistler now? So currently I'd say like almost a week. So right after yeah. you got back from Korea, you went to have fun there. Exactly. No, it's, it's great. It's just very quiet and peaceful. And How did yeah. they welcome you back with your gold medal, tell me? Well, uh, we were in Vancouver when we landed, and uh, there was just a bunch of media and, and people with flags just waiting on the uh, on the exits of the uh, of the airport there. It was great. Everyone's cheering, and yeah. it was a nice welcome back. Your journey to this gold medal was really um, through track and field, right? That's right. Yeah. So I started off uh, doing a little bit of shop near the end of my degree at uh, Western uh, University in Ontario, and uh, uh, it was kind of a bit of a happy mistake. I was at a gym of a shot putter, uh, an Olympic shot, uh, sorry, excuse me, not shot putter, but discus star. And he's like, wow, you're, you're, you're like, you're really strong and you seem athletically gifted. Like, are you doing any sports? And, and no, at the time I was just focusing on school. And, and he's like, well, why don't you stick around at this gym and, and I'll train you. And then I thought, oh, wow, that's, uh, mm. you know, you don't get that off, uh, offer every day. So I decided to take a, take a risk and, and I started with the shot putter. I took it very seriously for two years. Um, had some pretty good results for being so short in the sport. Um, but in the meantime, I realized how good of a runner I was. And so there's a bunch of little like sprint competitions against the team and things like this where I surprised everyone. It was a bit of a, a little bit of a circus, a little bit of a joke, and everyone had a good time with it. But uh, everyone was very impressed how fast I was being uh, as heavy and big as I was. Yeah, eventually people started pushing me towards sports like football and uh, maybe into bobsled, which was uh, another possibility. So why did you choose that rather than football? Um, well, a big motivating factor was I didn't have a lot of time to relearn how to play football, the rules, the position, the gameplay and all that. So I thought uh, bobsled is a pretty unique sport where you just have to be very fast and strong. Um, learning to push a sled and, and jump in and all that, I feel could be a lot more streamlined and straightforward. So, yeah, and I also considered, you know, potentially like injury risks and things like that because I just had graduated uh, from engineering and so I didn't want to... Uh, go and, and work and maybe make it to the pros and then get really hurt and then be left with nothing. So I thought the best decision was to try bobsled and, and, and see how it was. It's good quite hard. Yeah, I just went to a combine in McMaster University, which is very close to where we live uh, in mm -hmm. London, and uh, they pushed me on to Calgary, and, and that was the that was the beginning of the rest. But it's been just only what? How many years now? Four. Yeah, four. So that's really like from four years and you're into yeah. gold medal at the Winter Olympics. I can't believe it. Is that typical? No, I think it's it's a very lucky progression <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Tell me, what is it about this bobsledding? What is What are the most important things in it for you? Um, I, I love the uh, details that you need to make perfect to, to be successful. Um, that's everything from the control of the runners um, to obviously the physical preparation and how hard you have to train in the summer times. Um, I think that a lot of bobsledders would surprise a lot of athletes if they saw how strong and fast they were. I mean, if they were to compare us to some, let's say, football players even, because a lot of people can uh, relate to that, um, we would actually quite handedly beat them in a lot of these strength uh, tests and, uh, and speed tests, which is... Um, like I said, a lot of people don't really um, appreciate that or, or are aware because it's a, such a mix of Formula One and uh, sprinting mm -hmm. and Olympic lifting. Um, it's a really beautiful sport, yeah. What's the speed? We're looking at like maybe between 40 and 50 kilometers an hour as you enter the track. So you have to jump in the sled around that speed. And then uh, top speeds of the sled in track would be anywhere between, I think a reasonable range is 140 kilometers an hour to about 155 kilometers an hour. So that's not dangerous? Nah. <laughs> For sure it has, it has its risks. Uh, now, why did you decide to do this in a, like a double? Why not just yeah, be yeah. yourself, just by yourself? Well, actually, they're, they're starting uh, to do something what they call monobob. Um, so, obviously, just a person pushes and drives by themselves. Um, but the sport's really interesting because you have the chance to do two-man and four-man. So, with two-man, you get to kind of show off a little bit more as uh, how fast and good of an athlete you are um, with the pilot. And um, as far as handling, it's a little bit different. The uh, two-man's a little bit more like a motorcycle, and the four-man's more like a, let's call it like a car. So, you have to drive your lines a little bit differently. And the four-man's... Uh, it has its own exciting perks because it's very team-oriented and 
just being at the start line with four guys that are just absolutely fired up and ready to to go is uh, is quite a fun experience, especially when you execute well as as a group because it's mm -hmm. hard to be synchronized with uh, with four people. And how do you get to end up with that particular part there? I'd say like an Olympic year, uh, the coaches generally decide, and so uh, they pair the best brakemen with the best pilots at the beginning of the year, and they try to build some kind of chemistry and kind of work out some of the uh, you know troubleshooting problems that can show up in the season. And uh, I'd say I was lucky enough to be in excellent shape in the Olympic year, and uh, of course they paired me up with Justin for two band, and very thankfully it worked out. Are you good buddies? Yeah, we're we're all pretty pretty decent friends, and and uh, we all come from such different backgrounds. Um, and so being together for as long as we are throughout the entire uh, World Cup season, um, everyone gets pretty close by the end of it all. I heard that you wanted to be to represent Poland. Is that right? Yeah, when I when I first tried out, it was the uh, the Sochi Olympic year, um, and and of course back then I had no idea how strong uh, a bobsledder I was. Um, so considering the way the Canadian team was structured back then. I tested well, but I had no experience, of course. Um, so they had said that, you know, of course, stick around, do the development cup and all that. And uh, back then, uh, David Kuptrick was the uh, pilot, and he ran into some issues with one of his brakemen because they were injured. And I'm trying to think of when that would have put us. I think maybe like November, maybe October. I made good friends with the Australian bobsled team in Calgary, so I guess that should be the first thing I say. Because they spoke to Kuptrick and said, we know a Polish-Canadian guy who could mm -hmm. uh, you know, help you out, and he's very strong. And, uh, and then they tried to kind of put, put the whole thing in motion of trying to get me to be part of the Polish Federation. Um, ultimately, the, uh, the bobsled governing body had uh, decided against it because I didn't put in my papers soon enough. And in that situation, I felt it was unfair because... I didn't know that I could do that, so how was I supposed to put in my papers before I started right. the sport? <laughs> now, talk about talk a little bit about the experience of being there in in that great place, and how was it? It must have been an amazing experience for you. It was uh, it was very eye opening. I guess at a very basic level, I would tell anyone that it's a lot like uh, a very very big summer camp uh, because you have your counselors, where I mean, so-called uh, support staff from the Canadian side that uh, help you. Um, kind of you know, make sure you have everything you need, where you need to be, the clothes you need to wear, like the uniforms you need to wear for different events. Um, there's a big cafeteria where all the teams, all the countries go and eat together. And it was my first Olympics, and I thought it was very well organized. Uh, the Korean people were extremely welcoming, and they were such fans of the athletes being there. It was, it was, it was, so, it was so touching. Um, every time we went somewhere, people were cheering, and everyone wanted pictures. My goodness, if you, if you let one person in a crowd get a picture, then like 100 people would line up, and, and, they, and they'd all try to get selfies together. And oh, it, was, it was just, it, was, it, was, it felt really nice, it, because they, they really cared about the athletes. And then, of course, the Olympic venue itself was very impressive, the track is a state-of-the-art uh, facility. And, um, and as everyone else saw, um, the competition was tight. We couldn't have asked for better results. So overall, I had a very, very positive mm -hmm. experience, and the village was uh, was great. Did you manage to do any sightseeing? Um, I'd say not uh, not traditionally, is where someone would go to another village and really walk around all day and check something out. But we did get a chance to see some of the other other <clears throat> excuse me some of the other events like uh, speed skating, the short track. I was able to watch live and uh, figure skating, the team events. Um, but I'd say that uh, the year before in March. We had a test event where, think of it like a regular race. We all showed up, and, and it was there um, that I went and, and saw some of the surrounding uh, villages and, and things. And one of the best mm -hmm. things I saw was the uh, Waljong Song Temple. Obviously, it's a very, very ancient uh, Korean Buddhist temple, and it was just, it was just gorgeous, gorgeous. I, the artwork is, um, I mean, again, you can imagine a lot of the Oriental-style buildings and mm. uh, sculptures and, and everything. And, and there was monks walking around, living yeah. their day-to-day. -day and but it was modernized, too, which was very interesting to see because he used a lot of, you know, like modern concrete and marble and things like this. And it was a very beautiful mix. Uh, did, did they feed you Korean food? Uh, there was a Korean food station if someone wanted to go and try some things. One of the most popular things was something called uh, bibimbap, which is um, a mix of, of course, you have rice, you have uh, some cabbage, uh, beets, carrots, uh, oh. kale, I believe, and... Uh, Bulgogi beef, that's their specialty. And they mix it up with this really special kind of hot sauce, and uh, it was delicious. Mm -hmm. Did you have a chance also to mix a lot with other Canadian athletes? Yeah, absolutely. In each building we had um, 
uh, like a like a lounge where we could just sit and watch other events and hang out with some of the other athletes. And it was great to, to get to know the faces behind uh, the competitors because, of course, like over the years, like you see some of the classic people. And for example, like in Canada, um, Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer are very famous figure skaters. And, and to, to meet them in person and see them live on on, uh, on TV competing at the Olympics uh, was really kind of it was interesting. It was very, very cool. Did you get support from the like a lot of support and and cheering from the Polish community back in London? Oh, of course, of yeah. course. Uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, veterans that, of course, moved to Canada and in America, and I'll see it's no surprise. Um, and uh, my grandfather and grandmother were part of um, uh, Polish combatant society, um, and so obviously the whole uh, community there was was extremely mm. proud, and, uh, and they shared a lot of pictures and stuff with uh, some of the other members. Yeah, your your house was decorated beautifully. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> my dad kind of surprised my mom with the project and then my mom got excited and then she helped paint and, and, and things right. like that. But, uh, but your parents yeah, flew to Korea, right? To be with you. Yeah, and they were there at the finish line for the two-man race and the four-man race. It was mm -hmm. it was incredible to see how proud uh, both of them were. They told me how amazing of a gift I'd given them. And uh, it's hard to truly understand that from their perspective because the whole situation was just such a dream and such a yes. such a rush for me. And so it was unreal. It was nice. Were you born in Canada, Alex? Yeah, yeah, I was. And do you speak Polish? Yes, yeah, fluently. I've been oh. blessed to, to have grown up speaking Polish with my parents and uh -huh. Polish school every Saturday. All right. Hartestwo, <laughs> and I uh, did a little Polish dancing. And yeah, all right. So you're one yeah. of those. Young people that really try to keep the heritage going. That's Absolutely. great. That's great. Did you meet the Polish team? Oh, yeah. I've, I've been friends with them for, for years now on tour. With respect to themselves as a, as a country in bobsled, it was one of the best finishes they'd ever had. But oh. uh, they're, still, they're still getting better. They're mm -hmm. still getting more support. And they have a, a couple of really good athletes on their team currently. And mm -hmm. I'd be excited to see how they develop over the next four years towards Beijing. What are your plans now after you finish your skiing in Whistler? Make sure, make sure I'm healthy. Um, you know, kind of see how things are uh, financially and and uh, and just take it uh, day by day. I guess you know, because I've never, I've never won the Olympics before, so I have no idea. Well, how I'm sure you haven't. <laughs> A year of, of discovery. Right. Well, Alex, we wish you medals in all kinds of colors. You know, yeah. gold preferably, but all the other ones are good too. And yeah. congratulations. We're really, really, really happy for you and proud of you. And, um, you know, all the best. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. To learn more, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. Smachnego. We're here talking about a lovely mushroom soup and our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two Heritage Polish cookbooks called Polish Classic Recipes and Polish Classic Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations, but updated for modern kitchens. So no more pinch of this or a glass of that. If it's still cold out your front door, then it's a great time to make fresh, hearty, stick-to-your-ribs soups and stews. We love using fresh dill and dried forest mushrooms in our Polish dishes. Yeah, about those dried mushrooms. That's a big deal because they're an important part of Polish cuisine. Their flavor, when hydrated, is distinctive and much more intense than fresh mushrooms. To our palates, the absolute best ones are wild mushrooms grown in Polish forests, but they're pretty expensive. Peter used to get his dried mushrooms on eBay from a farm in Bulgaria. They were wonderful, but those prices quickly went sky high. So now on Amazon, I found some pretty good dried mushrooms from various other European countries. Our last batch came from France, and it only cost about $35 US for a whole pound, which lasts us more than six months. They come in a plastic container about the size of a gallon jug, and boy, that works for us. Since it is still cold outside, Today we want to share with you a hearty Polish soup that will please the whole family. It's really easy and quick to prepare. It's full of delicious mushroom flavors and very representative of traditional Polish comfort food. Plus it relies on a few dried mushrooms to kick up the taste. Here are the main ingredients. Four to eight dried mushrooms if you have them. More is better for me. 
one and a half pounds of potatoes peeled and sliced, one cup of fresh dark mushrooms washed well and sliced. Creminis are good and usually available. Then you'll need seven cups of beef broth, a bit of flour, water, and of course salt and pepper. Then to finish the soup, you'll need two-thirds cup of sour cream, chopped fresh parsley, and chopped fresh dip. So if you've got dried mushrooms, be sure to wash them really well because they tend to be sandy. Soak them in a cup of very hot water for about half an hour or until they get soft. Give them a rough chop, but keep that liquid for the pot. So in your soup pot, bring the broth and the dried mushroom liquor to a low boil. Add the potatoes and all the mushrooms and simmer for 30 minutes or until they're just soft. Mix the flour in the cold water and slowly stir it into the broth. Bring it back to a boil and immediately remove from the heat. Mix in the sour cream, parsley, and dill. If it were me, I'd leave out the parsley because I love dill so much. Just saying. Taste and season with salt and pepper, but go easy on the salt and keep tasting because the dill seems to bring out a natural saltiness in the soup. Laura likes to serve this soup in a dark pumpernickel bread bowl where I can find my inner caveman and tear off hunks of bread to enjoy the soup. But if not, just serve it with slices of any fresh, dark, crusty bread and sweet butter. The full recipe for this dish and information about our heritage cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the post on February 5th, 2014. Smacznego! heard on podcast about the experience of people from other countries and ethnicities living in Poland. One person who has actually done solid research in this field is Sarah Greenberg, a sociologist and professor at Ithaca College, New York, who wrote a PhD thesis at the Graduate School of Social Research of the Polish Academy of Sciences and the University of Warsaw on race and identity in the Polish-African communities in Poland. We reached Sarah Greenberg in Ithaca to talk about her research and its implications. So, Sarah, why don't you just first tell me about your, your, yourself? What is your life all about? I'm from Ithaca, New York. Uh, that's where I grew up, um, spent most of my life. I did my undergraduate uh, in culture and communication at Ithaca College. Uh, right after I finished my degree here, I moved to Poland and Uh, you know, that was for a number of different reasons, but one of them being that both of my parents are Polish. Uh, we spoke Polish at home, and I think I had only been in Poland once uh, in my 21 years of life, and I felt mm -hmm. that there was something sort of uh, pulling me in that direction. So I um, studied um, through the Polish Academy of Sciences and did my master's thesis on uh, the memories of the children of uh, solidarity activists in Poland. And then um, I planned to just stay in Poland for about a year, but I ended up meeting my grandmother there, uh, I guess re-meeting her, because um, I had known her as a child, but uh, we met and, and formed a really, really tight bond, so I decided to stay a bit longer for a PhD program in, in Warsaw at um, the Graduate School for Social Research. What made you go from the topic of collective memory and, and things related to the um, underground movement in Poland to race relations? I'm so happy that you asked that question because I think it's so important for me to preface, you know, as a white researcher going into Poland, um, you know, someone who's Polish-American, you know, how I got into um, doing interviews with people from the Polish-African community, um, you know, a lot of it was a little bit of, uh, like, self-discovery. So after my first year in Poland, um, I started to realize that there uh, that I was encountering instances of anti-Semitism, um, just kind of microaggressions um, regarding um, my, my Jewish ethnicity, which I had never really been in touch with or even thought about uh, my entire life living in the United States. So You know, I didn't consider myself Jewish, um, even though I knew that my father's side of the family was. I wasn't practicing. It was just not a part of my identity. But as soon as I came to Poland, um, you know, I was being referred to as the Jewish friend or, you know, doctors were asking me about 
my heritage based on my last name. But and was that was that um, in any way negative, or were they just interested? There were also moments where it was negative. There were sort of slurs that were, um, you know, targeted at me based on um, a part of my identity that somebody had assumed was a part of my identity based on the way that I looked or the things that maybe they, um, I I guess, assumed. So in that sort of exploration, I was just sort of thinking about um, Polish identity and what it means to be Polish. Um, I found that you know, myself, even though coming into Poland, I felt Polish, right? I was raised by Polish parents. I had so much Polish culture in my home. We spoke Polish at my house. Um, But coming into Poland, I almost immediately felt othered. And for me, you know, I could, of course, pass as Polish, or I could even be included as Polish, but a little bit different. But I started to wonder how people who were really physically different, who did not fit into this kind of white uh, Polish uh, Catholic category, um, how they experience their everyday lives living in Poland. What kind of people did you speak to? I initially started with talking to friends of friends, but I really wanted to kind of explore further and see what the you know relationship between race, Polish national identity, and Polish uh, the kind of Polish racial identity that existed were. Uh, and the relationship to racism and microaggressions that people were. So I actually, I conducted uh, 33 interviews, and those interviews were split between um, individuals from African countries like Nigeria, Kenya, Senegal, Somalia, um, uh, Tanzania, and a few others who had moved to Poland for different reasons. And then I also did interviews with the children of uh, Polish and African parents, Um, which were not children, but adults between the ages of, I believe, 18 and 24. Um, And then I also did interviews with the white Polish mothers of young children um, growing up in Poland today. Who have African uh, husbands. Yes, husbands or partners. Or partners, yeah, that's right. Okay, so what did you find out? What I find really, really interesting is I built off of Eva Nowitzka's work. So Eva Nowitzka had... Um, done research on the children of of transnational marriages. Um, And in one of those pieces, she had talked about physical difference being this, um, you know, big factor when it came to identity development. Um, And so I found that it was was very different the way in which individuals from African countries living in Poland, who lived, you know, a lot of them, more of their life in Poland than they had lived in, in their African countries, their experiences were very different from, for example, um, biracial children, that their experiences are very different. And this has to do with historical context, um, the time in which they're living in Poland, also the kinds of networks that they create, the communities that they create based on these experiences are very different. And then I found that the third part of interviewing white Polish mothers was also uh, really eye-opening. They were taking on these kind of anti-racist actions. So they were advocating for their partners, for their children. They were doing things to try to really um, speak to those who were discriminating against their partners or their children, uh, which, you know, sometimes even meant um, speaking out to their families, right, or some of their close friends about the sorts of things that that they were hearing from them. So each part of this community uh, had their own sort of community that that they were working with, which is fairly normal, right? You, You tend to gravitate towards individuals with similar lived experiences. So I think that in Poland, a lot of times we create this one homogenous group of like, oh, these are the Africans, right? Or the Black people. Uh, Whereas the people who are living in Poland, which is between, you know, maybe two to 5,000 people from African countries, are all, you know, the diaspora is huge. These are people who who don't even connect, some of them uh, through the same language or culture, So one kind of really important piece was understanding that while Poles might be perceiving uh, the African community, and I put quotes around that, as this one uh, homogenous community, that it's very, very dynamic and complex. Um, And there are many uh, different types of things that are happening within this community. But at the same time, the perception by Poles is having an impact on how these individuals create community in Poland and try to work together in order to maintain a positive identity in Poland. How do they feel? I mean, is this experience predominantly positive or not? 
I, I got a range of different experiences. Some of the things that I heard were extremely troubling um, experiences, physical violence, racism on the streets, um, you know, structural and systemic forms of racism where people were not allowed to rent certain spaces once they met the landlords, uh, people who were being cheated uh, through contracts, um, you know, based on maybe their inability to fully understand what the contract said in the Polish language, a lack of advocacy for these individuals um, to be able to sort of succeed in Poland uh, being a kind of structural problem that existed. Some people were saying that this was something of the past, that it was really difficult to live in Poland, you know, after 1989 uh, through the 90s. But then, you know, as Poland became a bit more progressive in the 2000s, um, they felt that it was becoming, uh, especially, you know, bigger cities were becoming a bit more tolerant. While there were individuals who said, that things were looking better. I don't think there was anyone that I interviewed who had said they had never experienced racism, right? If anything, they tried to rationalize the racism that they were experiencing by saying, oh, you know, but these were drunks or these are uneducated people or these people have a problem, not me, right? Because that's kind of what they've had to do. They've had to have these sort of defense mechanisms come in. So I was in Poland... um, Last year, in that time, I was able to meet with a couple of the people who I had uh, interviewed for the research to get a sort of update on how they were feeling now. And it it seems like the situation is dire, uh, that these are individuals who, you know, had some sort of glimmer of hope in the years that they were living in Poland and seeing positive change, but now are really feeling stifled um, as a result of the political shift and change. I mean, uh, it seems that similarly to what we're seeing in the United States, this rise in uh, in nationalism and, and kind of way of creating fear uh, surrounding difference um, is having a, a really negative impact on the people who are there now. Have any of your interviewees um, been to other places and could they compare or do you know uh, of any other research that's looking at um, the same issue in other European countries or maybe Eastern European countries? Yes, they did. Uh, a few of the, the individuals who were uh, the children of uh, Polish and African parents had talked about their experiences in, in other European countries um, and and how because there was more diversity in those spaces, in the spaces that they mentioned, um, they didn't feel so there was a difference depending on uh, the countries that they went to, and if there was more diversity in the area, whether that's ethnic or racial or any kind, really, um, that they experienced less of this kind of targeted uh, attention. As far as other research that's been done, there's an enormous amount of research being done all over Europe. I actually went to uh, a phenomenal conference, uh, the Afro-Europeans conference this past summer in, in Tampere, Finland. Um, and um, and there are people talking about French African identity, Russian African identity, Finnish African identities. Um, so there are there's such a huge amount of research being done now um, that maybe isn't quite as visible as it should be at this point. But I have faith that there will be more and more studies kind of coming through in the next few years, uh, especially with the changes that we've seen on a political spectrum throughout Europe. If we were just to use very simple language, what would need to be the conditions for an African person living in a European country to feel more comfortable? I think that there needs to be, uh, you know, institutional and structural change in order for there to be a culture shift, right? So if we are, you know, trying to create an inclusive environment that's welcoming to people from all different countries, not just from African countries, then there needs to be support that exists for these individuals when they enter or start to build their lives in a different country. So, you know, some of the the things that are missing, I think, in Poland, and and maybe since I left there has been more work done, but um, I heard from interviewees about um, lack of legal help, right? Um, uh, There's also structural issues in terms of uh, the the law enforcement in Poland uh, or police officers and how they understood hate crimes um, or incidents that were racist or not, right, that they were oftentimes the judges of whether an incident 
uh, was a hate crime or not. I think that, you know, when it comes to housing and employment, there's a lot of discrimination that's, that's also being done on that level. So I really think that there need to be structural changes in order for, you know, people within the society to actually understand that these individuals are welcome and supported, right? They need to see that from the institutions for which they work or interact with. Recognizing the work that's being done by the people in these communities is also extremely important in giving the power back to these individuals and to really uh, empower them, you know, when it comes to actually living and thriving um, in these societies. One example is James Amolo, who's been working in Poland doing phenomenal things, right, uh, about the, for the African community, has written a book uh, called Strangers at the Gate, a wonderful study of the types of struggles that people experience uh, specifically from the African community in Poland. In terms of, of other countries and other societies, are there any good examples in Europe, like something that Poland could maybe copy? I think that every society has its own issues. So while there may be in Finland, there's uh, more being done in terms of housing discrimination or something like that, but they may be struggling with something else like, um, you know, legal services. I think that, you know, there's no perfect place uh, where people are feeling um, entirely supported. I think that this is a shift that takes quite some time to really build an infrastructure to support individuals and to allow them to to thrive in different societies. So I don't know if there's any kind of model or example, but I think that there are models and examples of how to get there. So when it comes to social movements and social change, understanding that it, it takes grassroots efforts to create these changes, that people who are in positions of power are not just going to make these changes happen, uh, especially if they don't necessarily benefit them. So finding ways in which people can kind of subvert these messages that are being thrown around or can advocate for themselves, I think that's something that we can see, um, you know, around the world and something that we can learn from to try to strive for more inclusive and more supportive places. I currently work at Ithaca College um, I, and I teach uh, some sociology courses here. Some of the ones that I teach are intergroup dialogue courses where we try to bring uh, individuals into the classroom who are from different backgrounds to have conversation and learn how to communicate across difference. Yeah. And here in the United States, we have institutes that are dedicated to intergroup dialogue, right? Not here at Ithaca College, but we hope to be developing something like that in the future mm -hmm. at Cornell University, which is right on the other side, uh, on the other hill here. Uh, they have an entire institute um, dedicated to intergroup dialogue, whether it's on race, gender, sexuality, ability, disability, religion. And the University of Michigan is actually where this began. Um, and, you know, there are so many other at Syracuse University, Skidmore College. I mean, so many that are adopting this as a part of the curriculum. And I'm hoping that in the future, because I saw through the research what an amazing impact, um, you know, uh, even Polish, white Polish mothers or partners have on the kinds of conversations that are happening uh, between groups um, in Poland. I hope that there will be some way to maybe offer some sort of intergroup dialogue courses or workshops at universities in Poland where we can bring people from different races and ethnicities together with Polish individuals to see, um, you know, or, or to learn how to constructively communicate. To learn more, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. You've been listening to the 52nd episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For a lot of additional information, multimedia and links, please visit our website, mypodcast.com. And while you're there, please share your comments, your reactions and suggest ideas. If you know of any interesting story that we should cover on our podcast, please let us know. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast app.
And we leave you with the legendary Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin playing Chopin on his electric guitar. Thank you for listening to Polkas. Thank you.